Today, we're going to deal with uh, a subject like, whose door is Jesus knocking on? And we've got a picture. Go ahead and put that picture up there. Now, now, how many of you ever seen this picture before? There's Jesus. They always got him looking that way. You know, he's kind of somber. He's got a cool red jacket on, you know. Sometimes he's got a little, a little pizza pie behind his head, you know, and, and sometimes he's got his hand up a certain way. It's just all kind of different ways. But I, I don't know that this is really the Jesus of the modern day. Because when I read in my Bible about the Jesus of today, this is what I, I see. I see his hair is white like wool, like snow. And his eyes are like flaming fires. His feet are like burnished bronze in a fire. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. And out of his mouth proceeds a two-edged sword. And his voice is like the roaring of many waters. And then I like this. And his face is like the sun in its brightest time. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus that's knocking at a door. And that's the Jesus that we want to talk about today. And that's, uh, I don't know where that picture comes from, but you, you can take it down now because enough of that picture. <laughs> but really, you know, you say, where, where did that picture come from? Why did anybody ever do that? And really it comes out of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And this is what it says. Behold, Jesus is speaking. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the most common interpretation of that scripture right there is Jesus is knocking at the door or at the heart of an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't know him and somebody who hasn't chosen yet to follow him, and he's knocking at their heart's door, and if they will open their heart's door up, he will come and live inside of them and change everything. How many of you ever heard that? Maybe an evangelist. Come on, raise your hand if you ever heard that. An evangelist said it. Somebody said it at an altar call, you know, at a youth rally. You know, come on, open up your heart. And you have to open up your heart to the Lord. That's true. But is that what this verse is really, really saying? Is that the true interpretation? So let's, let's put it in context now and let's talk about it. It comes out of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, the first three chapters, uh, the, the whole book was written by John the Apostle, we believe, around, oh, A.D. 95 or 96. He was on the Isle of Patmos. He had been exiled there uh, for preaching the gospel. And so he's all alone, and he gets this vision from the Lord. And he writes down, and the first three chapters is written to seven churches in what is now Asia Minor or present-day Turkey. You've got a map. Can you just throw that map up there for me? See that map? You can see right now where, where is uh, uh, Asia Minor. All up in there, all up where Turkey is. Uh, there are seven churches there even listed there, like Philadelphia, Sardis. You've got Smyrna and others. You've got uh, Ephesus there. And he's writing to these churches. And then right there in the blue square, you see a church called Laodicea. That was the last church in that group of letters at the end of chapter 3 of Revelation, written to a church called Laodicea, and it was right in the middle of all the trade routes. You can see right now it's like at an intersection, a major intersection, and it was a powerful, powerful city, and it was a rich city. I mean, these folks had it going on. 
You know, it'd be like one of our major cities now that's prosperous. I was just watching before I came to church, so I was getting rid of the TV was on, and talking about Jackson Ho, um, um, is it Montana? Wyoming. Wyoming? Yeah, Wyoming, that's right. And it, it talked about how many millionaires are there. I mean, it is one prosperous place. I mean, they've got billionaires living in there, and it said then they've got the people who want to try to survive, got to work three jobs there. It's a very, very prosperous place, and so was Laodicea. So much so that in AD 60, an uh, uh, earthquake destroyed the city. And of course, they were underneath Roman rule, Roman influence, and Rome always helped their cities that were in trouble. But they sent a message to Rome and said, hey, by the way, you, no need to come. We don't need your money. We don't need your manpower. And they actually rebuilt their entire city with their own resources. So they were a very, very self-sufficient area of people. And that self-sufficiency had moved into the church at Laodicea. And that attitude of self-sufficiency had in essence, to one degree or another, kind of shoved Jesus sort of on the side, and they had really just embraced the culture of the communities around them. You know, it's not hard for a church to embrace the culture around them. That's why Jesus always taught us all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that we need to watch out who we're hanging out with. You know what I mean? So let's read these verses in context today, and let's see what Jesus is saying. We'll start in the 15th verse of chapter 3, and Jesus says this. He says, I know your works. I want to stop there just for a minute. And Jesus says, I know your works. Understand this, that Jesus knows everything about everything. He knows everything about me and you uh, about churches. He says, I know your works. He says that to the Laodicean church, and he says that to our church and every other church. I know your works. I know what you're working on. He said, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Powerful scripture. You wonder why Jesus chose this thing of water and cold and hot. Well, the thing about Jesus in his teachings always, uh, you can read in the Gospels, he did this continually. He always used examples of things that people knew about. There was a farmer who went out and sowed some seed. It fell on hard ground. It fell on thorny ground. They understood that. They understood farming. They understood the different soils. He talked about fig trees and different things of that nature because they knew about that. And it's no different here. Jesus is speaking to the Laodicean church in terms that they understand. Because right, right uh, south of them was the city of Colosh. You can go ahead and put that map up again if you want to. The city of Colosh. And then right north of them was another city called uh, Hierapolis. And Hierapolis, think about them, they, were, they, were north, they had hot springs there. Even today in that region, there still are these hot springs full of minerals. And then south in Kalash, which by the way, there was another church birthed in that city, the church of the Colossians. They had cool water, almost like uh, springs, like artesian wells, just flowing. So there was cold water south of them, and there was warm water north of them. And that's where Jesus is talking. He said, I, I wish that you were hot or cold. They understood that. Now, the thing about Laodicea is in all of their prosperity, they didn't have any water there. 
And so they had to actually pipe water in through aqueducts. And they're still there today. There's pictures in this. There's still pipe in the ground. They would, they would usually pipe it from, say, out of the mountain area. And when it left the mountain area, it was cool water. But as it traveled through these aqueducts, through this pipe, by the time it got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot water. It wasn't cold water. It was lukewarm water. Now, you know how that is. How many of you ever tried to drink lukewarm tea? I mean, come on, you know, I'm not a tea guy, but give me some iced tea, I can handle it. Give me some hot tea, I might be able to handle it. But give me lukewarm tea or lukewarm Coke. I love Coke. I know I'm not supposed to drink it, but I'm going to drink Coke. I mean, you know, just I'm going to do it. I don't know what to tell you. Judge me if you wish. But lukewarm I think not. And that's what was happening here. Uh, he used those illustrations to say, I wish that you, you had cold water. I wish that you had hot water. But because you're lukewarm, I don't like it. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, it's not pleasing to me. It's not what I want. Now, the thing about this thing of cold and hot, a lot of times these verses are used like this. The Lord wants you on fire. You need to have the fire of the Holy Ghost in you. He wants you on fire but then why would Jesus say, I want you on fire, and then say, oh, I wish that you were cold? Have you ever thought about that? I thought about that for years, that Jesus would want me cold. No, Jesus is simply saying and pointing out the weaknesses of becoming lukewarm, of becoming, in fact, useless, stuck in neutral. You see, the Laodicea church was so big on their self-sufficiency, but in actuality, Jesus is bringing it in that they were actually deficient. They really had a problem here. They had a dire need for Jesus and his presence in their church. See, lukewarmness means useless. Really what it means is no real kingdom purpose. No real kingdom purpose. And that's, that's the difference between being useful, which is serving and, and giving and sharing and, and, and bringing the word of God to people and building the kingdom of God, being active. And so we can say that one is inactive, the other is very active. And we've got to find out where we stand in this. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is talking about salt. Again, he used illustrations that people would know about. And he said, salt is good. How many know salt is good? I know some of you don't use salt on your food, but I'm a Cajun. Man, you take our salt away, we got nothing left, bro. <laughs> he said, it's good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use. It's not any good. Either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. And then he says this, he who has ears, let him hear. I love that Jesus always says that. He, he, he never presses you. He just does it. He says, hey, if you got an ear to hear, hear. And in fact, what he's saying, and if you don't have an ear to hear, I guess you're not going to hear. And so we want to have an ear to hear. And he's saying, salt is no good if it doesn't have saltiness. My life is no good if I'm not accomplishing the will of God in my life. Think about that for a moment. God did not save us to sit. He saved us to serve. He saved us to move. He resurrected us from the dead to be alive, to be active, to be useful. 
We're an instrument. We're co-laboring together with God. My goodness, you talk about an occupation. You say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I co-labor together with God, building the kingdom of God. That's what I do. Come on now. It's better than saying, well, I'm a lawyer, or hey, I own a business, or I do this. You know, no, I'm co-laboring together with God, vice president of the southern region <laughs> of the bank of God. You know what I'm talking about. And so, so Jesus is saying, come on now. You want to hear my voice. You want to follow me. You want to do what I have to say have to do. Now, there are two ways that you work together with God. There's the corporate way, and we do that, and we need corporate gatherings. I, I tell you what, I love gathering together on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or when it is. With the, I just loved it. I've loved it for 43 years. I, I'll tell you, it's the highlight of my life. I can be feeling down and, and just discouraged, but, but I get together with you guys in the Spirit of God, and all of a sudden, I am encouraged my faith is just built by being around the people of God in the presence of God. Isn't that right? And so there's this corporate thing. You know, this is a corporate gathering. When pastor says we're going to have a prayer meeting, that's a corporate gathering. We all get together. It's wonderful. Yeah, I sacrificed to come to prayer meetings for the last 43 years. You got it good. We pray once a month. Used to, we'd pray every morning at 5.30. And then people were a little troubled, so we went to 6 o'clock. And then we went from prayer from 6 in the morning. We'd pray 6 in the morning. We'd pray at noon, and we'd pray at 6 at night. we pray on Saturday night. we pray on Wednesday night. Come in together, just encouraged. But then there's that individual work that you do. That's the work that when God speaks to you, you hear his voice, and you do it. It might be anything. And it might not be exciting to one person you know, but when you're obeying God, it's very exciting. And so God's got this usefulness of you. There are things that you can do and people that you can reach and bless and help that no one else in the universe can touch. That's right. It's just amazing how God will use you. See, the church at Laodicea, they, they were actually lured away from the love of God by the love of money. And the love of money is a powerful thing. My little five-year-old granddaughter, yesterday she told, she told me, she said, Papa, I love money. <laughs> she just told me that. I thought, well, that'll fit in the message. <laughs> she had found 78 cents in, in, my, in our junk drawer, and she had it in her pocket. <laughs> and so what I did, I gave her another dollar in change. She loves money. Most people love money. But watch out. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This is what was happening in Laodicea. They had the love of money. You see, the blessing becomes a curse. Let me tell you this. Don't ever forget this. Success is a very, very dangerous place for you and I. Success. Very dangerous. The big question is this. Has your love for Jesus been extinguished by your love of success? You say, well, I don't know if I'm successful. <laughs> you live in America. <laughs> You're pretty successful. It's something about when times are hard, we draw close to Jesus. And when time gets very, very good, we have a tendency, a tendency to simply just say, I got this, it's good. 
Sometimes I really do. I sit down and I just, in the backyard, I'm just sitting there and I'm saying, I'm looking at my life and saying, God, my life is so good. It's good today. Today is a great day. This is a great season. It's wonderful. And then I think, well, you know, can I just put it on autopilot and realize that I got it made? And always then the fear of God comes on me and says, all God's got to do, if he wanted to, which he probably won't, but he could if he wanted to, simply just think a thought and I lose everything I have. Job is one example of that. You can read about him. But then in Revelation 3, verse 18, it says, Jesus is kind of like he's turning the screw. He says, I counsel, I recommend to you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. That's such strange things that Jesus would talk about those three things, that he would buy gold from me that's been refined and get you some clothes and rub some salve on your eyes. And you, you wonder, what is he talking about there? And really, it fits right in to what is happening in Laodicea. They had some bad water, but you know what? They're right in the trade routes, and so this is what they had. They had a banking system that was second to none. They had a textile industry that was thriving like crazy. They even had a, an eye college, a school of ophthalmology with, with famous eye salve that was supposed to have some healing agents to it. And so you can imagine the people that were congregating in that area going after this, this gold, this money, this, this clothing, this textile industry, and then the eye salve to, to heal eye problems. And so Jesus, as he does, he takes those three things and he says to the Laodicean church, instead of real gold, I want you to buy gold refined by fire, buy my gold. Now, the thing about gold is that gold here is, 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 Jesus is simply saying this. I want you to seek something that has value. I want you to seek faith that has been refined by fire. Never run from the fire. You know, it's always the fire of God. But there's a refining fire that the Bible talks about that really refines us. They boil gold. They refine gold. And all the impurities go to the top. They swipe it off. And that's when you have pure gold. We see pure gold all in the tabernacle in the wilderness. That was the portable church then. They would set it up and tear it down, set it up and tear it down. And in there, in the holy place and in the most holy place, the pieces of furniture, most of them were wood covered by gold. Wood always typifies humanity and gold always typifies deity. And so Jesus was man, wood, wrapped in gold, deity. It's all through the tabernacle. I love the study of Christ in the tabernacle. It's just tremendous. And so he says, this is the kind of gold I want you to. I want you to get this gold that is refined. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says, so that the testing of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's just so wonderful. Uh, Paul also mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where it says, all of your works are going to be tested by fire. So when you think about fire, think about it burning up all of your works. The fire's coming. 
I don't know. The fire's coming. Lord, I made this little bitty house. <laughs> Lord, I ran a successful <laughs> fire. Fire just burning. He says, don't only buy gold. He said, this, instead, I want you to buy white garments. The black wool garments were very popular, according to history, in Laodicea and all of that region. Even today, you'll see a lot of people dressed in black there, all the women shrouded in black, sort of like in black like I am today, you know. And Jesus says, buy, instead of black garments, I want you to buy linen garments. I want you to buy these garments that are white, that symbolizes the righteousness of Christ. White always represents righteousness. In the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was an eight-foot linen fence around the entire tabernacle saying this is a righteous place, the righteousness of God. God intends for his bride to be righteous. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, it says, it was granted her, the bride of Christ, Christian people, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So Jesus is saying, get some righteousness about you. Buy gold. Clothe yourself in white rather than black. And then he said, instead of the eye salve that Laodicea is selling, that has some additional purposes for the physical eye, I want you to purchase spiritual eye salve. I want you to purchase salve that contains the word of God and the power of God. In the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was the light from God. The menorah, the candlesticks, had the oil of God burning. It was the only light in all of the tabernacle. It was the only thing that lit the place up. There wasn't a bunch of candles there, LED lights or anything like that. Just the light of God by the fire of God. He says, that's, what, that's how you're going to be able to see. He said, don't worry about putting that Laodicean eye salve on your face. Get the fire of God in your face, the light of the Holy Spirit. That's how you want to be led. And those were the three things that he said. I love Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Look at it on the board. Look, look at it. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authorities and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Does that stir anything in you? That's why we need the eyes of our understanding open, that we can truly see what exactly is going on in the kingdom of God. Otherwise, we're blinded. I don't know why people get so excited about that. I don't see anything. What's all that about? Everybody clapping, singing, shouting. What is that? Praising God. I don't understand what that's all about. You need the eyes of your understanding opened, that you might truly see the glory of Jesus, the king of praise. He's so great. He's so wonderful. You know, this, this is what the Lord is called in the church to. Not only Laodicea, but he's 
true holiness, true righteousness. And this is what Paul was speaking about in 2 Corinthians when he said, you know what? You're surrounded by a bunch of people who don't love God. And so you need to come out from among them and you need to be separated from them. This has always been the the theme of God ever since the beginning of the Bible. You see, God's always got a special people for himself that he wants to be separated from the ways and the whims of the world. Always. He He wants you different, not weird, not crazy, not weird, come on now, but different, walking to the beat of a different drum, come on now, different values in the culture around you, look at the culture around you, it's going crazy, it's nuts, folks, out here, but it's no problem if you're different. I'm different, how about you? 43 years of difference, I love it. I stand out like a sore thumb. I'm against most things. I just don't shout it at everybody that I see. (laughs) You know what I mean? I love it when people, they rant and rave on Facebook, and I always, as soon as I read it, I always look it down at the bottom. It's like one like. (laughs) One person liked them. And they live in Tanzania somewhere. You know, they just, they're friends with everybody. And it's, I love what you said. I don't know what you said, but I love it. And so here is Jesus. Jesus is standing at the door, all right? Jesus is saying these things in this letter. And and so you you see how he's just kind of tightening it down. So where does that leave the church at Laodicea? Where does that leave an individual who's walking and tracking with Jesus on this thing? It leads us to one thing and one thing only. It leads us to a call to repentance. And there's that word again. Repentance because Jesus is the only remedy for the place and the direction that the Laodicean church was headed. Repentance. All churches, all believers every day need to be in a place of zealous repentance. Isn't that exciting? Put that on your refrigerator. Zealous repentance. Verse 19, he says... Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous. You know what zealous means? Well, we're in college football. Just turn on your TV tonight about 7, 38 o'clock and just watch the crowd in that stadium. That is a good definition of zealous. On fire. Zealous repentance. Not just repentance, but zealous repentance. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. This is what it says in the Amplified. I love this. Listen to it. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I tell their faults and convict and convince and reprove and chasten. I discipline and instruct them. So be enthusiastic and in earnest and burning with zeal and repent, changing your mind and attitude. Jesus, Jesus corrects people that he loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, for the, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It goes on to say that if you're not being disciplined, you're illegitimate or not a child of God. So don't grow weary in getting corrected. Enjoy it. Embrace correction. Look, I don't like to be corrected, especially by people. How about you? Let's get real. 
We did, I didn't like to be corrected by my mama when I was young, and I don't like to get corrected by my mama, I mean my wife, when I'm old. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I don't like that. I, I don't like to be corrected. Do you like to be, who loves to be, you don't love to be corrected, but when the Lord corrects you, and he does it in several different ways. He'll use a pulpit. He'll use a person. He'll use you reading a book, reading the Bible, or he'll remove his presence from you for just a moment. He'll remove his presence from you for just a moment. And then you'll understand what it feels like to be afraid and naked. Not because he wants to hurt you or make you feel bad or manipulate you or control you. He wants to let you know that he loves you. Because he's trying to take something out of your life, out of a church that's detrimental to that church or that person. And that's what the Lord is wanting to do here. So the question is, when you're disciplined, it's your responsibility to repent. Did you know that? When you're disciplined, folks, you've got a responsibility to repent. And by the way, no one can repent for you. It's a personal thing between you and the Lord. The responsibility is now... Along with the responsibility comes this wonderful thing that we love so much. You love it. You know you love it. And that is you have a choice. You love to have a choice, don't you? In clothes, in food, where you live, what you drive, where you go, when you go. So we have a choice to either repent or rebel, to obey or rebel. I've had obedience and rebellion in my Christian life. All these years. I could not stand up here and tell you that every time the Lord speaks to me or I read a scripture or whatever, that I'm just zealous to repent and I repent instantly and I'm the, like the most repentive person in the whole world. I, I couldn't say that. Could you say that? And the Lord knows that. And it's nothing to be proud of. But the thing about it is that each of us today, we've got this thing, this this right to decide, to examine our lives, to allow the Holy Spirit to riddle through us, you know, in your quiet time, driving in your car, kneeling by your bed, however your quiet time, when you're just quiet before the Lord, just let him just kind of like an x-ray machine, just like a cat scan, just, you know, come on. And when the results come, they don't lie. This is what Jesus is doing with the, with the church. And then it brings us to a scripture. The third chapter, the 20th verse. In light of everything that you've just heard, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Doesn't it sound a little bit different? that Jesus is actually knocking at the door of a church saying, let me in. And a church is made up of individuals. So what he's saying is individually, let me in. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm having a problem. Let him in. Jen and I were in Nashville, Tennessee in a hotel one night. We'd gotten this, this funky little room. It was a funny little room. I kind of liked it. It was in the corner kind of, you know, by a stairwell, you know, up on like fourth or fifth floor. And 
kind of like isolated it. We were, we were in bed. We just lay it up in there. I don't know if we were sleeping or just hanging out or whatever, watching TV. But all of a sudden, I heard somebody at our door just jiggling the knob and pushing on the door and rattling the door. And, you know, you get kind of rattled. You're in a strange city. You're in a little secluded room. And, and uh, so I told Jan, I said, get up and see what's going on there. She said, I'm not getting up. Be a man. Get up. So, no, really. I didn't do that. I got up. I got up, and I looked through the little peephole, and there was a guy trying to get in my room, you know. And so, what do you do? You know what I mean? I didn't have a gun or anything, and so this is what I did. I, I did the first thing coming to my mind. I took my hand, and I slammed it on that door twice, like, pow, pow. And then I screamed in the loudest, manliest voice I could, I could come up with, back away from the door. And I watched that guy, and look, he stumbled back about eight feet up against the, the other wall, and then we called security, and they came and got him, and he was just some poor drunk fellow that was on the wrong floor trying to get in his room. <laughs> but you know what I think? You know what I know? I know when Jesus knocks on the door of some people's lives, that's exactly what they do. They slam their fists of self-sufficiency and self-confidence against that door. And we just tell the Lord, back away from the door. You back away from the door, Jesus. And I believe this. I believe if the church individually and corporately opens the door and repents and he comes in, he brings his presence and let me say this to you. Man, if you don't get anything else today, get this, would you? There is absolutely nothing, nothing in your life that supersedes the presence of God. There's nothing. You can clap because there's nothing. There's nothing that supersedes the presence of God in a local church. We've gone through a lot of seasons. I've been around here for 28, 20, no, 33 years now. I don't know, 33 years, okay. And I've heard a lot of things about the church, you know, some bad, you know, some good, some real good, you know. Oh, you know, you, 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 the love is great. Oh, this is good. But this is what I love to hear. And I've heard it many, many times. I've heard people say, when, when I drove in the parking lot, I just began to weep. I just began to weep. When I walked across the threshold to come into the lobby, I just began to weep. I, I've, I've sat in the service and stood in the worship service for two months now, and every time all I do is weep, and, and they, they ask me, what, what, I don't, what, why is, what, what's causing that? And I, this is what I tell them all. It's the presence of God's Holy Spirit. It, you understand? You can't buy it. You can't muster it up. It doesn't come from the intellect. It has nothing to do with style. It is God's presence saying, I'm here. And that's what changes everything in an individual's life. That's why we speak it in context that Jesus knocks at the heart of the people of God. To let him in in his fullness. 
to the best of our ability where his work can be ignited, not only in our heart as individuals, but in our heart as a corporate body to accomplish his will on this earth until Jesus returns. So what we do, we create communities that teach people to know God, to grow in Christ, and to go in the power of the Holy Spirit until Jesus comes. And we do it to the best of our ability with the help of God and help of people and and knowing to follow him. And I believe at the end, his reward is going to be colossal. And that's found in the 21st verse. We're finishing up now. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes, the one who gets the victory, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, meaning my place of power, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And then he tells us, he who has an ear, he who has the ability to hear, let him hear voluntarily what the Spirit says to the church. Folks, let me tell you something. No matter what, no matter what the Lord allows us to go through, no matter what happens in our life, in this world, in this nation, in our city, in your family, or in this church, whether it be the most positive thing you've ever seen in your life, full of success and victory, or whether it's some of the most detrimental heart breaking things that happen, if we will hear what the Spirit of God says to us, in the end, we get the victory. And once we have the victory, we sit with Jesus in a place of power. Come on now. Isn't that enough to rise you up in your heart and bless you?